Don McGahn was always an unlikely figure in Donald Trump's White House. A long-haired libertarian who played lead guitar in his own rock band, McGahn served as the Trump campaign's chief lawyer and then got tapped to be White House counsel. McGahn eagerly accepted the job because he figured he could use it to achieve one of the Republican Party's longtime goals, to stack the federal courts with conservative judges. But along the way, McGahn found himself a witness to some of the most alarming acts of Trump's presidency, starting with Trump's tirades demanding that special counsel Robert Mueller be fired as a way to shut down the Russia investigation. As New York Times reporter Michael Schmidt details in his new book, Donald Trump v. the White House, McGahn effectively turned state's evidence and, unbeknownst to Trump, laid out for Mueller exactly what the president had done. It was an extraordinary scenario straight out of a Washington spy thriller, a White House counsel secretly diming out the boss with testimony that threatened to sink his presidency. We'll talk to Schmidt about McGahn's role in the Russia probe. We'll also check in with journalist Patrick Sims about the latest disturbing news out of Portland. And we'll give you a sneak preview, a limited one, of a new Conspiracyland podcast series that pops next week. All that on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we've got quite an episode uh, of Skullduggery for you today. Uh, we've been looking forward for some time to talking to uh, New York Times reporter Michael Schmidt about his long-awaited book, which is just out, Donald Trump versus the White House, Inside the Struggle to Stop a President. It's got some really fascinating details about just not just the turmoil inside the White House, but the role of Don McGahn secretly informing on the president of the United States to Robert Mueller while serving as White House counsel. Uh, you know, it's a really incredible tale. Michael's going to tell us all about it. But before we get there, obviously a lot of alarming news this morning, starting with the events in Portland, where an Antifa guy was shot by the cops resisting arrest for shooting the pro-Trump Patriots prayer guy last week. This seems like a prescription for yet more lawlessness and violence in Portland. It's pretty disturbing stuff. Yeah, and uh, we've uh, got our uh, Portland bureau chief, uh, the Skullduggery Portland bureau chief, Patrick Sims, joining us again. Patrick, a freelance writer based in Portland and who is focused these days uh, reporting on extremist political violence. Uh, we had him on, when was that, earlier this week? We had him on week? a couple of times, yeah. as, as recently as last week. Right. But It uh, feels like months ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. But, you know, Patrick was really talking about the kind of escalation of political violence in our culture in America right now. And so this feels kind of 
prophetic, more political violence. And, you know, it'll be fascinating to hear, Patrick, uh, what you think about the impact of this latest incident and also what the reaction is going to be to it. So, you know, why don't we just start there? Oh, one other thing. Yes. Isakoff, we will get to this later, but we are going to be giving a very brief preview of the latest Conspiracy Land series, which um, launches this coming Tuesday. Tuesday morning. This is a follow-up to our first Conspiracy Land series, which uh, is under the banner of Skullduggery. That was the Seth Rich story. Brilliant podcast narrative series that Isakoff did focusing on the death of Seth Rich, the young DNC worker, and the conspiracy theories that it spawned. This is a podcast series that is related in some ways to that story, but has all sorts of uh, new and different dimensions and characters. So hang on to hear a little bit more about that at the end of this uh, the, of the top of the show here. So let's get to Patrick first okay. and talk about Portland. So, Pat, tell us what you know about what happened Thursday morning and what the fallout has been so far. So a federally led fugitive task force that blended police officers from, I think, at least four jurisdictions, including local Washington state troopers, U.S. marshals, obviously had a tip of where Michael Reinel was, which was outside Olympia, Washington, the state capital, 90 minutes from Portland. And they moved on him at about seven in the morning as he exited the house. He appears to have drawn a gun. Eyewitnesses in the subdivision say he was seen backing away from the police with his gun out. One witness described a shootout that lasted a minute and a half. We don't have confirmation yet that he actually fired, but there is an eyewitness saying he had his gun out. Rhino was wanted for the killing last Saturday of the pro-Trump Patriot Prayer participant, and he had given an interview to Vice News. He had contacted a journalist and set up himself a brief interview with Vice, where he said that the Saturday night killing of the pro-Trump supporter was self-defense, that he felt he was in imminent danger, that he thought he was going to be stabbed, that he thought his friend would be stabbed, so self-defense. However, that's not a very persuasive argument. Uh, there was the other Patriot Prayer guy did not have a gun. He did not even have a knife. He appears to have been pulling out a can of mace when he was shot. So it looks to me like the most likely scenario is a very tense, anxious showdown in the streets and a quick draw situation where Michael Reynolds just thought that he you know, felt endangered and uh, started shooting. He seems to have followed that pattern perhaps yesterday morning when he saw federal agents and two vehicles approaching and they confronted him. He, he did seem to have pulled out a gun. So what we know so far is pretty much limited to that. Can I just break in just what's jumped out at a lot of people this morning when they were reading the news is Reinhold is an Antifa guy, an avowed open supporter of Antifa, correct? Yes, he referred to himself repeatedly as 100% Antifa. And, you know, that term always gets banded around. It's a very loose term. Was he a membership of anything? No. He showed up at protests. He volunteered. He called himself security for these protests. 
So he was, you know, very much committed to it. He was a constant presence. He was involved, you know, well-known to other participants, often of self-appointed security. He repeatedly brought guns to these rallies. He was charged on July 5th. He got in a scuffle resisting arrest and a gun fell out of his pocket. He was himself shot later in July while trying to disarm a right-wing protester. He took the gun away from the guy and was shot in the arm. Uh, and there are photos of the injury. And there so, was an outstanding arrest warrant for him, correct? Yes, yes. He was in, you know, it's, it's, he admits he was the guy who shot a Patriot Prayer supporter. So he had, you know, repeated brushes with the law. And, you know, he was, uh, by his own proclamation, Antifa, he was there in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. I believe he even has a tattoo that says Black Lives Matter. So while we can, you know, a lot of people showed up at these protests, he brought a gun. So that uh, is an important piece of information about what he was trying to do at these protests. And it confirms the likelihood that he had that gun or a gun on him when he was confronted by federal agents and that task force yesterday morning. Patrick, here's what fascinates me and actually sort of concerns me. This is kind of cursory, but just looking on social media this morning, uh, reading some comments about the reaction to the killing of this guy, it seems as if, you know, normally, you, you know, you would look at, you know, the, the Santifa guy who, you know, murders a Trump supporter and then allegedly murders a Trump supporter and then the 17-year-old kid who allegedly murders protesters in Kenosha, and you would sort of say, okay, there are extremists on both sides. These are, in some ways, marginalized people. They don't represent the mainstream in any significant way, and, and I don't think they do. But it also seems that a lot of people are so invested right now in this, you know, kind of political clash, you know, in this country that the reaction to this guy's death, for example, I'm surprised I'm not seeing a lot of people out there just condemning him for the original murder of the Trump protester. There seems to be some discounting of that. And what it makes me think of is, you know, you have reported around the world societies that are highly charged, where there's a ton, a ton of political violence. I did in Gaza and the West Bank. And there is this kind of fine line between a terrorist and a martyr, you know, an extremist and a martyr. And I just wonder what you're seeing in terms of the reaction to this latest incident and whether you're fearful about how our society deals with these kinds of political acts of political violence going forward. Well, unfortunately, Dan, I agree with you. It's deeply troubling to see the way some people are sorting the information, choosing what to believe. And I've seen examples of this. It doesn't necessarily speak for everyone. But when you say, for example, you know, both sides are engaged, both sides have extremists, you get into this necessary debate. Well, how much are they really equal? And, you know, I went out and talked to a professor from the Center for Study of the Radical Right, and he says to me, you know, something like 435 incidents of violence by right-wingers against the left. But he doesn't even keep the statistics on attacks by left-wingers against the right. And he said, well, there's so few, what can we do? Then you look at this sort of, on the other side, the left with this amorphous looting movement that has extremists in it, that is maybe there's Antifa, Antifa but who is Antifa? There's no membership. It's just whoever shows up and says, I'm fighting tonight. 
So the, it's very hard to judge to what extent these things, these phenomena are equal. I notice, for example, those who critique the looting that, and uh, violence that's occurred in the streets of Portland during protests will often present timelines. I was looking at one of all the incidents of looting and window breaking and fires that have happened in Portland by protesters, but they listed nothing at all to do with, for example, federal police sallying out of the courthouse building with tear gas and weapons. That kind of violence, state violence, doesn't appear in their statistics. So you see both sides kind of picking the numbers or the click cases they want to use as examples, which is how it works in the Middle East. It is how it works in, you know, divided, polarized societies like Venezuela, where there are, you know, the most polarized society in the world. You have two different versions of reality, two different histories, two different leaders, two different. So we have achieved a kind of Latin American or Middle East. We have uh, become Vene we have become Venezuela. Patrick, what's been the reaction in Portland since this uh, shooting? Well, I have to say, Michael, uh, my view is partial, but I went out reporting as I do on some nights. I, I, you know, and there was a protest, a small protest. This was two nights ago, but it, the city just seems so quiet. I think people are afraid. I think there's tremendous anxiety and tension across the city over what is happening. You know, we had this moment in early July where federal agents were pouring out into the streets, big street battles, and that receded as Donald Trump kind of pulled back the federal presence and it, the city became somewhat less disturbed by this. Yet here we are again facing not just demonstrations, but now, you know, numerous shots were fired by pro-Trump counter-protesters in a previous week. Now we have shots fired by an anti-Trump protest guy like Michael Renner, Rennell. And so, you know, this is America. There are guns everywhere, even in, in tame little Portland. So I think there is a lot of shock in the city. And, you know, the protests have not yet turned into a they're not yet reflecting what has just happened in the last day or two. I think this Saturday, we're expecting a return of the so-called Trump cruise, the caravan of pickup trucks. They've sworn they're coming back twice as big to get, you know, get theirs. And I think we'll see real confrontations. Yeah. Well, look, uh, this is uh, needless to say coming, you know, during an election season where the rhetoric is so overheated, and if nothing else, the fact that there was a uh, Antifa guy identified. I think it's the first time we've actually seen, uh, you know, an avowed Antifa supporter who first was accused of committing the murder of another of, of a pro-Trump guy and then gets shot himself. It's only going to feed the narrative of um, the Trump folks out there that uh, Antifa is a major presence and at the same time could spark yet more violence, which you know we'll have to see how it cuts. But at least so far, it seems to have cut a little bit in the president's favor, but, you know, there's obviously a lot more to play out. In any case, uh, Patrick, thanks for joining us. Keep us posted and uh, stay safe on Saturday when you go out there again. 
Okay, this is the West Coast Bureau signing off. <laughs> okay, right. the Portland Bureau. We have others on the. We have other bureaus uh, on the it. West Coast. Yeah, that's a <laughs> don't, don't, little bit, uh, of, little bit yeah, of empire don't, building, Patrick. Yeah, don't inflate yourself. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, the uh, uh, the Northwest. <laughs> yeah. Bureau. Okay. We'll give you Seattle. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. All Take right. care, Pat. Bye-bye. A couple of other things to um, uh, reference. This uh, Atlantic story by our old friend Jeffrey Goldberg is really stirring the pot, quoting uh, senior military folks and others familiar with Trump's decision not to visit the World War I cemetery during his trip in Paris, in which these sources are telling Goldberg the president didn't want to go because the cemetery was filled with losers. And uh, this was part of a string of comments the president made deriding and dismissing the people who serve in military, who have served in the U.S. military, who died during wars fought to protect this country. The White House is angrily denying it, saying this is fake news. But it's hard to imagine uh, the number of people who anonymously talked to Goldberg just making this stuff up. And in fact, other news organizations have started to confirm at least some of the comments that uh, Goldberg has quoted in his piece. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, when people assess the veracity of of this story and and who's telling the truth here i mean you know we're very polarized societies we were just talking about with patrick sims so there are a lot of people who believe what they want to believe but there are going to be some people who are going to put this in context and i think come out on the side of uh, this likely being true what is that context well this isn't the first time that donald trump has called american you know war heroes losers what did he call John McCain? Exactly. You know, he said uh, he doesn't like people who get caught and he called him a loser. Yeah. So this is in character. You know, they are the White House and Trump himself are scrambling because this is uh, one of the most sacred plots of land dedicated to fallen American heroes. And, um, you know, we're weeks away from an election and they, he knows how potentially damaging this is to him. So... I'm not sure if uh, going out there and calling it fake news is going to be enough for him. I think we may see I think we may see the Trump campaign doing a lot more to try to shore up support with veterans and with other Americans who would be very, very turned off by this. Sure. And and I got to say, you know, it, it is um, you know one thing to, to watch for is whether any of these anonymous sources choose to go public between now and election day and uh, put their name and face behind these comments. Uh, clearly, they would carry a lot more weight uh, if they did. The, it, of course, it would also make those people targets. Now, one potential witness to this series of events, it was uh, Ambassador John Bolton, who was then the National Security Advisor. We are going to have Bolton on Skullduggery next week. At least he's scheduled to appear and uh, we will have a chance to ask him because he was with Trump during that trip to Paris when these comments were made. And he was talking to then chief of staff, John Kelly, who's cited, if not quoted in Jeffrey Goldberg's piece, having discussed the decision not to go to the cemetery. So he may be able to shed some light on it. It'll be very interesting to hear 
what he has to say on the subject, given that he's obviously quite critical of uh, Donald Trump right now. But that is uh, something to look forward to next week. And you well, mentioned while, yeah, something else say, that we should look forward to next week. Right. While we are previewing next week's episode of Skullduggery, let's also preview the uh, Conspiracy Land series that... Uh, launches Tuesday morning. We're not going to tell you a lot about it. We're going to... Uh, like the element of surprise. A little bit of an element of surprise. But yeah. you know, here's what I'd say. This is a really powerful and compelling podcast series. For those of our listeners who remember the Seth Rich podcast that Isakoff did, was that last year, Mike? It was last year, last, last summer. Year, yeah, last summer, yeah. Uh, you know, that one kind of brilliantly delved into the origins of our current kind of this current conspiracy theory moment and how conspiracy theories have infected our politics. This series really focuses, I think, on two things. First of all, without saying too much, the extraordinary role of the president of the United States, Donald Trump, driving an insane conspiracy theory that's really completely untethered to reality and the truth. And yet, spreading it to his 80 million followers on Twitter and the impact that has, and how the social media platforms, particularly Twitter, have kind of unleashed this monster and for the most part have been unwilling to tame it. And, you know, one thing that that you say in the podcast, which I think bears mentioning here, again, without giving away the story, is... What you do with this podcast is kind of freeze a moment in time, one story that is a kind of a microcosm that is emblematic of all of the crazy conduct and behavior that we have been seeing over the last four years, you know, from this president and from a lot of his supporters, including conspiracy theorists like the QAnon group. And because we become we have become so inured to this kind of activity and behavior, it is important every once in a while to kind of stop and take stock and and really look at, at one particular episode that is representative of what we have been through. And the last thing I will say, one of the reasons that this series is so powerful and so compelling, and this was true with the Seth Ritz story, is focusing on the human dimension. At the end of the day, conspiracy theories are extremely harmful to average, everyday Americans who get caught up in them. Uh, And the callousness, not just of the people who spread the conspiracy theories, but frankly, the social media platforms whose platforms are used to spread these conspiracy theories. The role of Jack Dorsey, the uh, CEO of Twitter, is a pretty interesting one um, in in this story. So... Some of the same themes, some new themes, certainly some new characters. This is a a terrific listen, but it is also a very, very important story. I cannot stress that enough. So look for it on Tuesday morning. There will also be uh, articles on Yahoo News that Mike wrote to go along with them. And, you know, we'll we'll be really interested in hearing your reaction. We'll be all over Twitter. (laughs) Uh, ironically (laughs) promote on Twitter our takedown of Twitter (laughs) Uh, that's overstating it a little bit but anyway three episodes next week uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday Conspiracy Land brought to you by Skullduggery tune in and now let's get on with the show well I was going to say yeah I'm I'm, I'm, uh, vacation I'm I'm heading back to the beach 
our listeners should know uh, it, this is the most beautiful day of the year at the beach. And because uh, this new Conspiracy Land series is so good, I was willing to literally come back from the beach <laughs> to help promote it. So I yeah. am not going to be on the interview with Mike Schmidt, um, although I will be listening to it because the book is great and Schmidt's an amazing journalist. I'm headed back to the beach. I will see you next week for the John Bolton um, okay. uh, interview and all the other con- great content that we will be producing. And God, I'm going to stay am, here. I am getting into, I'm totally getting into like promotional role here right now. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. kind of enjoying Get back this. to the beach. I'm staying here in my attic to talk to Michael Schmidt. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. We now have with us the aforementioned Michael Schmidt of the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winner and also author of the new book, Donald Trump v. the United States, Inside the Struggle to Stop a President. Welcome back to Skullduggery, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So great read, great read. And congrats on the book. You know, we've all read and uh, been through and uh, some of us have written books about Trump and Russia. Yet you have managed to come up with quite a few new details that uh, expand our knowledge of the events in Trump's presidency. And I I just want to start out, I suppose, by the character who you focus on, because, you know, although we've all heard his name and he's all, you know, his role has been out there and written about the human portrait of Don McGahn and the strange situation he found himself is just fascinating. I think I said in the introduction, it's out of a Washington spy thriller, and that's what this was. I, When I learned the story of McGann, and the more that I dug into it, I just thought it was gold. I mean, I actually just thought at one point about writing the whole book about McGann. He's just, to the average person, he's not significant enough to write you know, a whole book about him, but he was worth, I think, half the book. And and it's because he does these three things, which I'd be interested to see what you think about the remarkableness of them, but he does three things. He's in charge of the politically most important thing. He's in charge of this umbilical cord between Trump and his base and how he's in charge of the judges. He's take, he's remaking the federal courts, not just with conservative judges, but conservative judges of a particular bent and of a young age. So they're going to have an impact. We're going to live in Don McGahn's America for decades, decades and decades to come. So so historically and impactful, he's a big deal. But he's and in that process, he's taking advantage of the unusualness of Trump, which is the fact that Trump was like, sure, you can be in charge of the judges. Like, yeah, just come to me with the judges and we'll nominate them. This was not like a previous administration where there was like groups of White House lawyers who got together with people from the Justice Department and the party and they stroked their chins and thought about who they should nominate and what they should look like. This was like, this was like flat, you know, we talked, you know, in the the military about the flat organization. Trump's like, yeah, just come to me with the judges. Let's do it. Right. He's like, and, and McGahn actually had charts, right, where he tracked, you know, day by day the progress for getting all these conservative judges confirmed through the Senate. So he's he's going to impact. So his impact is enormous. This is not just like some aide, 
you know, who was like part of the story, but it's not really clear what they did or what they're, you know, like, you know, look, like Steve Bannon was around the White House for six months, but what did Steve Bannon really do besides, you know, he provided some sort of intellectual or um, <laughs> that's but some, some underpinning. Let's like go too far there. Yeah, 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 yeah right. like going too far. But like there's a real impact of him. So he's in charge of this most important thing and he believes in it. He probably believes in it more than Trump believes in it. So there he is on that issue. Then he's the chief witness against his client in an existential threat. So in most criminal investigations, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, it's really hard to get a great witness because you know you need to have a good command of the facts, you need to be truthful, and you need to have good accessibility to the players. So here you are, you had the president's lawyer, someone who had a good command of the facts, who was not a liar, who was answering questions about what his client was saying behind closed doors. Like it's like a dream witness. And it, and it was pretty damning stuff. Remind us of just what it was that McGahn told Mueller's team about what the president had asked him to do on repeated occasions. I mean, it's a range of things that basically show Donald Trump trying to control the investigation and control his Justice Department, ranging from wanting loyalty to wanting loyalists to oversee the investigation to wanting to curtail investigations, to ultimately wanting to use, to get rid of Mueller, to fire Mueller, to use his power to fire Mueller. And then in sort of the ultimate standoff of this, wanting to prosecute himself, James Comey and Hillary Clinton. And it's an ongoing live obstruction investigation into the president. This is a, Trump is doing things and he is spawning off tentacles of this investigation in almost near time. And you would love to have a witness if you were a prosecutor. In this case, they had the White House counsel, the top lawyer in the White House, and they basically had unfettered access to him. There is a historical analogy to that, of course, and it's John Dean. But the difference is that John Dean turned state's evidence and dimed out Richard Nixon on obstruction after he left the White House. Don McGahn was doing it while he was still in the White House. In one of the most remarkable things that I found out that I think that most people, that I think you and I would appreciate, I'm not sure everyone would appreciate, is that this cooperation becomes so extensive that there are what I would call near real-time requests for information going from Mueller's office to McGahn's lawyer to find out what Trump is saying behind closed doors. So if Donald Trump thinks that what the FBI did to his campaign was invasive in terms of the spying and stuff, in regards to Donald Trump's behavior himself, that is a far more invasive thing than anything I know. Near yeah, McGahn was an informant. He was a federal informant for Mueller's team while being the top lawyer for Donald Trump in the White House. So those are the so, the, so we've covered the first two remarkable things. The third thing, which is kind of an obvious thing, is that he's a chief container of Trump. He's someone trying to contain the president, you know, along with the John Kellys of the world and such. And we know the different makes and models of the container. But the thing is, is that you have these three remarkable things. So why is he still there? Like any lawyer 
very basic. Like if you're a lawyer and you have a client and he's hanging out with the folks that are getting into trouble, you tell him to stop hanging out with them. So why does he stay? He stays because he believes so much in the judges. He knows he has a once and a never again opportunity to remake the courts. And he can hear, he thinks he can hear in Kennedy's voice that Kennedy may want to retire. So it's the spring of 2018. Kennedy's been on the court for many, many years. McGahn thinks he may want to retire. And McGahn thinks, I need to stay here. If I do not stay, Kennedy may not retire because he doesn't trust that Trump won't put a Fox News analyst on the court. And McGahn makes a decision. And at this point, it's, it's you know, McGahn's over a year into the presidency. There's near real-time requests that have come in for information. He knows he's dished far too much on Trump. He knows that Trump doesn't understand his extensive cooperation. He knows that he, he can't contain Trump, that he is I mean, he thinks he can contain him in some ways, but in other ways, he, he realizes that it's, it's completely fruitless. The children are out of control, and the children being Trump, Ivanka and, and Kushner in, in McGahn's eyes. And he, and he basically, he can endure great pain in the belief of the means to his ends. And he says, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay through the end of the Supreme Court term and try and see if Kennedy will retire. Because if Kennedy retires, I'll get another shot at the court. And I'll have an even greater, greater legacy. Uh, right. Greater and, 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 you know, Kennedy, of course, does retire. Kavanaugh gets on the court, thanks to Don McGahn. So two questions leap out at me just in listening to this um, is, first, he is the White House counsel. How is it that he ended up testifying instead of what one would expect, which is, attorney-client privilege, executive privilege, all the privilege claims that the White House used to fend off congressional subpoenas, they didn't use against Mueller. So that's number one. And then number two, for McGahn, how much inner turmoil, angst, you know, did he have over this very curious role he was playing? So what happens with McGahn's cooperation is that the decision that Trump and his lawyers make is made in the summer of 2017 about what to do with McGahn. Mueller has been stood up. He is going to do an investigation into whether the president obstructed justice. And the president's lawyers, John Dowd and Ty Cobb, have sold Trump on the decision to cooperate. They believe that if they cooperate, the sooner they cooperate, the faster this will be over. The problem is, is that they never looked into what the witnesses may actually say. They took Trump at his word that he had done nothing wrong. And they basically say, if you hand over documents, if you allow your people to talk, the sooner this will be over. So they come to McGahn, they say, yeah, we want you to go in and talk to Mueller. Mueller asks, for McGahn is one of the first witnesses, it's a pretty aggressive move to ask for the White House counsel. And McGahn knows what he knows, and he knows that the president's lawyers don't know this. So McGahn sort of pushes back on it, and McGahn's lawyer calls the Trump's lawyers and says, are you sure you guys really want to do this? Like, are you sure that this is what you want to happen? And McGahn, the answer back is yes. And McGahn basically has to make a decision about what to do. And he's very conflicted about it because McGahn believes in Trump. He believes in Trumpism. He believes in remaking the courts. And he knows that he's going to inflict great damage. But he also knows the president is batshit crazy, as I think he has described and, at times. And yeah. McGahn knows 
he could, if there's going to be a conspiracy to obstruct justice case, McGann could easily get roped into that, regardless of whether he did the right thing or not. And him and his lawyer basically make a decision. It's like, okay, well, if Trump wants us to cooperate, we have to go in and make sure that they hear everything from us first. Because so this is not just a regular criminal investigation. This is an investigation where there will maybe be a report. And a few errant sentences here or there or adjectives or descriptions could destroy the rest of McGann's career. McGann is a fairly young guy and will have what needs us to have a second half of his career. He can't lose his law license. He can't have his reputation completely destroyed. So they realize that they have to be as forthcoming as possible. And it just sets up this unusual highly, it's not even unusual, it's just like sort of extraordinary collision of events that leads McGahn to become this witness in a way that, you know, I mean, in the Clinton investigation, was there a witness like that? Not, well, certainly not as high and as close to the president as Don McGahn was. So, you know, the other half of my question was, he's essentially turned state evidence. He's giving Mueller's team testimony documents, evidence that could be used to charge his client, the president of the United States, with obstruction of justice. How did he process this in his own mind? Did he realize the magnitude of what he was doing? And was he conflicted about it? I think he was very, very conflicted about it because I I don't think that because he has all these different forces on him. He has all these different things. He's trying to protect himself. He's trying to he's trying to remake the federal judiciary. He's trying to stop Trump from himself. And, you know, he believes in the in the in the cause so much that I think it it may have blinded him at times. But he feels extremely conflicted to the point that, as I point out in the book, in one of the first interviews with with Mueller, they get to the end and they say, is there anything that we haven't you haven't told us? And McGahn hadn't told them yet about the attempt of they hadn't covered the attempt, they didn't know, the Mueller's team didn't know um, about the attempt to fire Mueller. And McGahn's lawyer jumps in before McGahn can answer it and basically prompts McGahn to disclose the fact that Trump had pushed him to fire Mueller. And McGahn's lawyer is trying to get out in front and make sure that McGahn is being as forthcoming with them as possible. Not that McGahn- And his lawyer is Bill Burke, who's an interesting character in your book as well, but- Burke, who's here, is representing all these different witnesses um, who are trying to navigate uh, the Trump the Trump White House and navigate this investigation. And it wasn't that McGahn was holding things back. They hadn't gotten through this issue in the interview. But Burke wants McGahn to be the first one to tell Mueller's team about all these things because it'll protect them. And in the end, it's it sort of works in the sense that McGahn comes to the Trump presidency. He walks away with a remade federal judiciary. He had some nasty tweets about Trump about him, but he doesn't come out, I don't believe, as tarnished as many of the others. In the Mueller report, he's basically used as a, as a credible witness against the president. Um, he still has his law license. And unlike, I, I think the biggest takeaway from McGahn um, and what went on with him and Burke is that unlike other folks that have come in in the list is just astounding of these people around the president that have gotten into legal trouble, Steve Bannon being the most recent one. Like the list is astounding that, so McGahn came to the Trump trough. He probably walked away with the most significant lasting thing in the judges. 
he walked the tightrope in ways that you probably shouldn't have, and you, you know that he, certainly his lawyer wanted him to quit um, and leave, and he walks away and he has no criminal exposure, and and that is just a it's just a remarkable story, and it's a little bit of it's like sort of inside baseball on like legalese stuff, but it's a a human story of survival. I think. Yeah, you know, that that's what struck me about it. It was the human story that that really grabbed me about this. I mean, look, a- after the Mueller report came out, uh, the uh, House uh, went to court to try to get McGahn to testify in public. I always thought it was a bit of a waste of time as much as we all would have liked to have seen McGahn testify before the House Judiciary Committee. You know, I always imagined he would simply just dryly read or repeat what he'd already said to Mueller and wouldn't go one step further. I don't think he was going to satisfy either side. Yeah. You know, and I think he he also would have said, I don't think there was a time I never saw Trump. What I thought Trump was break the law. That was McGahn. Well, didn't break. but Trump tried to get him to change his account of what the two of them had talked about. That's obstruction right there, right? It's witness tampering. McGahn was going to try, I think, if he ever had to testify, to to thread the needle of of everything that he's done. And it may have looked funny to both sides. I don't think either, you know, and he he may have undermined him himself. He's gotten away without having to do that. And we may never hear from him. And um, which is why your book is so invaluable, because it probably provides the most uh, thorough and illuminating look at what he did and what he experienced. The other central character in your book, much better known, is James Comey. And, um, you know, you were an eyewitness. (laughs) You were on the ground as as Trump was pressuring Comey first to... um, give a pass to Michael Flynn, demanding loyalty, you know, uh, writing his memos. What is Comey's legacy in your view at this point? What is Comey's legacy? He's a complicated guy who managed to piss off all sides during the 2016 campaign. There are a couple of details uh, in your book that struck me, but and I'll I'll bring them up I, in a I, moment. I, but you know, how how do you view I, this Comey's is why role I, at this point? So Comey presented a difficult challenge, you know, as a storyteller. I'm saying that with quotes because, like, I, I never thought of myself as a storyteller. I've always thought of myself as a reporter. You know, you go out, you find one, two, three new facts about an important thing, and you try and do a story. So this forced me to try and use some muscles that I had I had not used a lot. And I thought that that, that Comey was a, a challenging thing for me because, sort of as you were laying out, Comey has written a book. He's testified before Congress. Democrats think he got Donald Trump elected. Republicans or Trump supporters think that he uh, completely destroyed Donald Trump's presidency, you know, for vengeance. The most people don't want to hear that much more from him, but he's someone who I understood probably I had a front row seat to as, as closely as anyone as I had ever covered. So how am I going to write a book and not write about Comey? Um, you got his thing, wife. That's, that's, that's what well, you so did. The, the that was the voice we hadn't heard before. Yeah. So I, I said like, well, how do we tell the story? You, you and I will never be the FBI director. Okay, so it's very hard to relate to him and to understand his situation. 
you know, he tells this story. He says, come back to October 28th with me. Well, like, no one wants to go to back to October 28th of 2016 with you to, like, understand how you reopen the clinic because we're not going to be the FBI director and we're not going to understand that. So how can we tell the Comey story in a fresh way? Well, if you move the camera and you move the lens, let's try and look at him through the eyes of his wife. We all will never be the FBI director, but we all know what it's like to watch a loved one go through something awful. And we can sort of, we can relate to that in a way that's more applicable. And with his wife, Patrice Comey, she's watching someone who she believes is a pillar of what is good and great of America and of Washington and watching him being blamed for the election of Donald Trump which is just an amazing, amazing thing to just be blamed for the, the election of Donald Trump and knowing how painful this is for her husband and watching him have to navigate Donald Trump, sort of the worst nightmare of that. So I tried to tell the story through the eyes of Patrice Comey because I thought it was a new and fresh and more relatable way to understand the Comey story. Because I think that the Comey story, people didn't want, don't want to hear it. People um, have made up their mind about it. So let's try and look at him um, from a different way because, and you'd say, well, why do you do this? I did that because I was convinced that like McGahn, in the sense that we're going to be living in McGahn's America for the next three decades, besides Obama and Trump, I think that Comey is the most historically significant figure of this time, whether it's, you know, whether it's emails or whether it's Russia or Trump, I believe that, that he's just his incredibly historically important. And because of that, I think anything that illuminates why he did what he did is essential to history. So a couple things leapt out at me in reading your account. You know, of course, you know, we all know the sort of basic facts of the story of what Comey did. But when you put it together, starting with the Clinton email investigation in which he in which on his own, he decides to give make that press statement in July of 2016, which talked about how Hillary Clinton had been reckless in her handling of emails, but she would not be charged. He did that without clearing it with the Justice Department uh, and the attorney general for whom he works. Then he makes the decision in late October to release the uh, the letter that they've reopened the investigation because of the emails found on Anthony Anthony Weiner's laptop. Again, he does this on his own, and then he opens up the investigation, the counterintelligence investigation of Donald Trump on his own without clearing it with the Justice Department. And you know, look, Comey is a man of rectitude, uh, you know, who takes, um, uh, you know, who has the values that one would like to see in an FBI director. On the other hand, we had an FBI director for 48 years by the name of J. Edgar Hoover, who did what he wanted to do and didn't clear everything with the Justice Department and became a powerful and feared figure. We don't sort of want the FBI director to be making these decisions on his or her say, alone, right? Well, it's a really interesting question. It's like, in this, in this country, we pride independence, right? We want people to be independent, right? But also in- political accountability. Well, right? let, me, let me start with that and then get to the other thing. So we want, people, we, we want people to be independent. But then I think sometimes we see that independence and we say, well, hold on a second. What is that independence? And what does that mean? And is that going too far? And I think a lot of times in Washington, 
we see the opposite, which is more of sort of the political party sort of falling into line. So that, that makes sort of Comey's actions different. He sort of sticks out differently in the sense that he's sort of out there on his own, almost like a fourth branch of government in a way that certainly I had never seen before. And he's taking moves in ways that are just different and more aggressive. And he's using the bully pulpit of the FBI director. He's using the FBI director as a bully pulpit in a way. He gives a speech on race that most politicians wouldn't even give. Um, and he's wading into different things and he sees he sees his role um, certainly in a very different way than Mueller did before him. So it's this Comey was testing the role of the FBI in the Justice Department in a way that we had never seen before. And what happens is, is that in that process, in him, in him doing that and pushing the FBI in this direction of increasing independence, he is, um, he runs into massive, massive problems. Yeah, I, can, I should, in, in my litany of actions he took on his own, I forgot the one that, you know, may be quite, certainly quite relevant today. And that was the decision to send the FBI agents in there to interview Michael Flynn without telling Sally Yates, who was then the acting attorney general. And as you report, she was furious when she heard that Comey was doing this on his own. The, that decision to, Comey's made a lot of decisions. That decision is, I believe, one of the most consequential ones he made. It's up there with the press conference and the, the reopening because it sets the entire Flynn matter on a trajectory that by the 20, so this is this happens in the first week of the presidency, of the Trump presidency, by the 26th day of the administration, events have set in motion that Trump is clearing the Oval Office to ask Comey to end the Flynn investigation. And by doing that, he is creating enough evidence against himself that this, the disclosure of that will so rock Washington that it will create a cloud over Trump's presidency that some would say that he's never been able to get past. And it's just a series of events. And I have figured that out, that the in, in this kind of was frustrating during the book. I was like, I sort of conceptually had figured out that the decision to send in the agents of the White House was such a big deal. And I was thinking to myself, wow, that's like, that's such a conceptually big thing. I really want to focus on that. And then as time went on, the Justice Department with the Flynn case was putting out all this new information and stuff about it. Other people had figured out what a consequential move that was by Comey. And, uh, you know, sort of in an example of a, a sort of a miscalculation by Comey in that he believes that he should send them in on his own because it will look bad that Sally Yates, an Obama holdover, is sending folks into the White House, that that will look sort of political. Um, in the end, Comey making that move for Trump supporters, it does not look much different. I mean, he's basically, there's no, there's no real difference in their eyes between Sally Yates and him. So as we speak, we are all waiting for what is likely to be the next chapter in this saga, and that's the report by John Durham into the origins of the Russia investigation and related matters. And I want to talk to you about that in a moment, but a couple of details in your book leapt out at me because it seems they might inform about what we might expect from Durham. One is when you talk about the Steele dossier, which clearly for the pro-Trump crowd is looms large, you know, 
for them. This is the dirty dossier, and and we should acknowledge at this point it was filled with all sorts of allegations that have never been verified and in some cases have been disproven, yet was taken seriously by the FBI, by much of the media for a long time, giving Trump some ammunition. And, of course, we learned from the Horowitz report that as early as February of 2017, uh, when the world was first learned, just a few weeks after the world was first learning about the Steele dossier, the FBI uh, tracked down the primary subsource, the primary source for Steele's allegations, and learned that um, a lot of this was just rumor and speculation. The source really didn't know if it was true or not. It's stuff he heard, bar talk, all sorts of stuff like that. And Here's what astonished me in your book, because you make this point a couple of times. Comey was never told about that. How is that possible? Remember, Comey is the one who presents Trump with allegations from the Steele dossier at the January 6th meeting. So it's pretty important, uh, you know, a pretty important document in him. How does the FBI, FBI director not get told this? I'm so glad that you picked up on that, because... What happens is, is that as I'm finishing the report, the Horowitz report comes out and it creates all these questions about the page FISA and about the dossier. And I didn't think that the page FISA was necessarily germane to the story I was telling, but I thought that the issues in about the dossier were really important. And I thought the Horowitz report was really important. So how did I, how do you take that and make that part of the story? Because it's not something that I that I wanted to. Because I thought it was important. I mean, it's 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 like important. It's important stuff. So what I did was is I, I tried to connect the pieces and realize that what is Trump agitating about in the spring of 2017? He's agitating about the dossier and the allegations in the dossier. And every time that he's calling Comey up, it always comes back to the allegations in the the stuff about him in the dossier with the women in Moscow. So. If you look at the Horowitz report, and I did some additional reporting on this, the FBI interviews, as you point out, that subsource for the dossier in January um, of 2017, and they never come back and tell Comey the subsource has walked away from this. So every time that Comey is talking to Trump about the dossier, and Comey's saying, hey, we're looking into the dossier, you know, just let us get to the bottom of it. And Trump's saying, like, look, like I didn't do this stuff. Comey doesn't know that the subsource has walked away from those statements. How is just, that possible? And, and that is one of the questions of the entire Durham thing. It's that why is it that these interviews with the subsource were not rising back to FBI leadership to tell them about that? Because there's an argument in an alternative history that if Comey had known that the subsource had walked away from it and the FBI felt confident that the subsource was telling the truth, that Comey could have said to Trump, hey, look, we've talked to the, the, the main source and it's a bunch of nonsense. And the next time I testify before Congress, I'm going to say that. That probably would have kept Comey's job for a little bit more. By the way, the idea that Comey was going to survive as Donald Trump's FBI director is preposterous. And like we should have seen this coming a long time ago, and there's no way that it would have survived over the long term. But it may it may have changed things, and and history might might have been different. The second thing, and 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 this is like this is this is the thing about it is that this story, particularly this part, forces us to really need to understand the nuance of it. 
and accept and try and you know hold some competing thoughts in our head at the same time. But here was an, an argument that I heard about this in my reporting. Just because the subsource walked away from the statement didn't necessarily lead some of the FBI investigators to believe that it wasn't true. Because sometimes people say something and then they realize the impact of it and they walk away from it. And in the case of the subsource, and this was just what someone, this was sort of a theory that was proposed to me about what the investigators might've been thinking. In the case of the subsource, the dossier had come out. BuzzFeed had put the dossier out. The allegations were out there. And the subsource is thinking, oh shit, like if it comes back to me that I'm the source of it, and there's some thought maybe was the subsource trying to walk away from what they had said before, and that you were never really going to get true clarity on whether the subsource was passing along. But I, you know, look, if you're an investigator, if you're an FBI agent, if you're a Justice Department prosecutor, and you're trying to, you know, and you got essentially one source for some really serious, heavy duty allegations, and the guy walks away from it, and you don't have anything else to back it up, you got no case. There's no, the absence of evidence is, uh, what is it? What is that expression? <laughs> it's like, you don't have evidence, you don't, you don't have the yeah. evidence. And I think that well, the, the, the saying is the absence of evidence is not evidence of ap absence. That's Donald Rumsfeld. Um, but, you know, that didn't work out so well in the Iraq war. But I just thought that it was like the FBI should not get a pass on this issue. They should not get a pass on the fact that FBI leadership didn't know about it. And I thought that the best way to make that point and to make sure that the Bureau, that this fact about the Bureau was out there and that you know, that this issue is fleshed out was to remind the reader every time that Trump brought up the dossier that the subsource, you know, I don't know if I did it every single time, but as much as I could to remind the reader the subsource had walked away from the statements and that the Bureau for some reason hadn't told Comey. And I think it would have made a difference. I think history would have been different. I, it, I, it, it does make me wonder if this is at least one focus of what Durham is up to, that there were people in the FBI, and presumably by now he's talked to them, he's got their emails, he's got all the documents. Somebody made, dis if if your sources are are accurate here, and I assume they are, that, that Comey was never informed, that you know people made a conscious decision not to report this up the chain and you know the question is what was their intent in making that decision were they I, i'm not an i'm not an expert in the the page fisa can get very confusing and the and, and yeah. all stuff but I, I am by the way so well, go ahead. well maybe you can answer this question. <laughs> right. i mean i think at that point the bureau is sort of is is invested in the dossier because they yes. used it in the fisa so right. if you're going to make that interview a big deal, you're basically saying, hey, um, you know that really controversial FISA that we did and we used some of that stuff in the dossier? Well, the dossier may be full of shit. The other thing that uh, struck me in the book, and you have a brief reference to this, which is that, the, uh, that there were some inside the CIA who did not buy in to the intelligence community assessment that Putin had ordered the Russian attack in order to elect Donald Trump. And, you know, when I saw that in your book, it, it made me wonder if that's what a, another focus of Durham, that there was dissent within the CIA, which we have not heard about before. In fact, I, I was struck, I, if you remember during the Republican convention, Grinnell gave a speech in which he taught in which he talked about people who who tried to dissent. And that and I think I tweeted that day, this is the first we're hearing about this. 
I hadn't read your book yet. So you obviously had already heard it. I don't know what, how big a deal that is. Clearly, you know, there are elements in the Justice Department led by the Attorney General who want to challenge the um, conclusions of the intelligence assessment. What do you make of, of what you know about the dissents, if that's what they were, within the CIA? Yeah, I went as far as I could on, on sort of what, what I knew about it. But on the, on the intelligence community assessment, what I thought was, was interesting is one is that the fact that intelligence is different than, than criminal evidence. So like intelligence trick helps us understand what's going on, but is not supposed to be omnipotent. It's supposed to, to be a guide to what we get to. And criminal evidence has to clear several different bars to get into court to be used against a witness. And I think sometimes in the public, we mistake the two. We treat all facts the same way. Something in a tweet is the same thing that's in a newspaper story, that's in a, you know, a, a blog post, that's in a you know, that's intelligence, that's evidence. It's just that we treat information all the same way. What I was trying to say is that this intelligence community assessment is based on intelligence. And the assessment itself was so powerful because it essentially put the cloud over Trump's presidency before it started. Now, I have no reason to believe that the intelligence community assessment is not accurate. You know, and, you know, it's been affirmed by the Senate committee, you know, the Senate Intelligence Committee and stuff like that. Like there's been stuff that backs it up. But I just thought that this document was so powerful in creating the narrative around the Trump presidency before it began that it's not just like, oh, you know, hey, guys, we think Russia, like it's a it really set the, the, the Trump presidency on a trajectory. Do you agree with that? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. L- listen. The, the, the evidence was powerful even before the intelligence community weighed in. We knew the Russians had hacked the DNC. We knew they, they provided the emails to, to WikiLeaks. We knew they were in, involved in the social media campaign. So the fact of the Russian, of the extraordinary and unprecedented Russian interference in the 2016 election, you know, I think is undisputed. I mean, the one issue that I think seems to be perhaps a issue of dispute, and we don't know the full story yet, is that this was done for the purpose of electing Donald Trump president as opposed to sowing discord within the American political system. And even Barr the other day on that CNN interview, you know, was asked about this and certainly doesn't, I mean... he looked like he was trying to say, if I could understand him correctly, basically saying, yeah, I accept it, you know, sort of in that tone. Like, yeah. like it was it was not like, look, you know, this is a really hard thing. And the intelligence community came to the best thing they could based on what they had. And, you know, they told the truth. You know, it wasn't that embracing of it. So it's still hard to sort of figure out. And I think that the other thing, and we see this in media coverage of intelligence stuff, too, is that intelligence is intelligence and it's like are you going to get the smoking gun um piece of evidence no is there a lot of different facts public and private i mean you know intelligence wise that tell that make this a very compelling um fact i mean the not not compelling make it very believable yes but it's intelligence and um it's a gray world and it's um you know it also allows people to attack it and I think that's what you've seen in Barr, is that Barr has found a way to try and seep doubt into that, with Durham sort of being uh, at the front of that. So what are you expecting from Durham, and when do you expect we'll see whatever he's going to do? 
I'm not sure. I had initially thought, like just sitting from the cheap seats, that Barr would not have appointed Durham if he did not know there was some real smoking gun there that would really, you know, sort of rip the cover off of either what the FBI had done, the CIA, the intelligence community, that really would have changed things. That was my sort of initial assessment of it, because I didn't think he would take such an extreme measure without knowing that. The more that we've seen Barr and his behavior, and if you read the Flynn motion to dismiss, the more that um, I'm less convinced that there would have to be something really there there for Barr to have done that. Because if you read the Flynn motion to dismiss, which I've read several times with clear eyes, especially the sort of argument part of it, there's not really a smoking gun there either. So I'm less convinced that Barr is necessarily motivated by sort of hard, hard facts at the heart of things. Well, we will see. I think it's going to be, um, given the (laughs) buildup, there'll be a lot of people in in, Sean Hannity watchers will be pretty disappointed if if Durham doesn't deliver some indictment. But you see, but you see Trump already, you see Trump already sort of putting the pressure on him and saying that Barr has the ability to do the right thing. And in some of his, it was a Fox News interview the other day. So and clearly, if, if it's just the, the fact that this FBI lawyer, you know, misrepresented this stuff, um, not that that's insignificant, but um, that's not what the right is looking for. Here. No, that's so not what, what they're looking for. And, you know, people on the left, of course, are already trying to discredit Durham, saying it should be, you know, uh, this... His report should not come out, at least before the election, and uh, it's clearly a political hit job. I don't know about that. John Durham has been a career prosecutor for uh, many, many years. He was tapped by Eric Holder to do the uh, CIA torture report. You know, it's hard for me to imagine that he has totally prostituted his independence and integrity just to do William Barr and Donald Trump's bidding. And also, as a reporter, I always want to know new facts. If there are, in fact, things that we don't know, about how the investigation came came about. You know, I want to know what they are. I want to see the emails. I want to hear what the uh, testimony is. So I, you know, would like to see it sooner than later, having no idea what Durham's conclusions will be. Two other details I just want to discuss from the book. One, and this struck me, I haven't seen this got any attention yet, is there was a leak to WikiLeaks of uh, CIA hacking material, right? And I think this is 2017, how the CIA conducts hacks of adversaries or targets uh, around the world. And Steve Bannon, you report, had a heads up on that, that Bannon knew what WikiLeaks was about to dump with stolen materials from uh, the CIA. How did Bannon know that? So he was certainly talking about that weekend before that it comes out, he's talking about how there's something very damaging about the deep state coming and that it will expose the deep state. And when this stuff came, this stuff came, you know, he thought it was coming out on a Monday and it came out on a Tuesday. And this was the weekend of the Trump Tower tweets. This is when Trump in March of 2017 goes to Uh, Twitter and says that Obama tapped his wires. And Trump is claiming that he's been illegally spied on by the FBI and the intelligence community and the Obama administration. And there's a real push within the administration to find some way 
to make Trump's claims true. There are efforts to dig into the unmaskings to figure out, you know, what was going on. They're, they're just sort of fishing for anything. And it's in the course of this that Bannon is talking uh, to others about how this, there's something coming and it's going to be damaging. And um, at the very least, um, he saw this as a good thing, um, that there was come, something coming that was going to damage the deep state. And this is, you know, this example of it's one thing to run against the deep state as politicians, but then to be inside the government and be talking about things that would damage the deep state, you know, is a completely different thing. And it was surprising. Yeah, no, but the, the, but the fact that Bannon knew it is what I was. Um, yeah, I mean, at. Bannon, Did Bannon he have is some talking, source inside WikiLeaks. Bannon is, Bannon is saying he knows something damaging about the deep state is coming out, and it's going to be coming out on Monday. And this, this leak from WikiLeaks had not been, they had not said it was coming out on Monday, and it comes out on Tuesday. So it raises the question it's like, well, what did Bannon know, and how did he know it? Yeah. And then finally, I mean, you wrote about this in the New York Times off your book um, the other day, which is that Mueller had the criminal investigation that he was doing, but there was this counterintelligence investigation that Andrew McCabe had launched, again, on his own into whether the president was a counterintelligence threat uh, to U.S. national security. And it looks like that investigation was never completed. The remarkable thing about that is that when Mueller testifies before Congress in, I guess it was July of 2019, he says all this out loud. He says he did a criminal investigation, that they didn't look at Trump's finances, and it's all out there in the, in the open. What I was able to figure out in the book is that McCabe opens this investigation and he does it on his own. And Rod Rosenstein is like, what the heck? We can't, we can't do this kind of investigation into the president. And in appointing Mueller, he tells Mueller, go conduct a criminal investigation into the interference in the 2016 election. And he doesn't want Mueller to turn it into a fishing expedition. And he sends Mueller off on this criminal direction. But he never goes back to McCabe to say, hey, you know, I told Mueller to go do a criminal investigation. And he wants to do other stuff to come back to me, but he's leaving McCabe with the impression that Mueller is going to inherit this two-pronged counterintelligence investigation of Trump's ties to Russia and criminal investigation into whether the president obstructed justice. And McCabe thinks that Mueller's off doing this, and Rosenstein never comes back and tells him that he thinks that this investigation he opened was crazy and that he was he was wrong to do it. And McCabe leaves the FBI nearly a year later, still thinking that Mueller's doing it. And Mueller wasn't. Now, I got to say, this strikes me as a, a lot more complicated question than, than any of them, really, because, you know, what is the standard for a counterintelligence investigation against the president of the United States? You know, national security policy is set by the elected leader of the country, not by FBI agents on their own deciding what the national security policy of the United States is. If the president 
president wants to improve relations with Russia and thinks that's in the country's national security interest, it's really not for the FBI agents to um, contradict him and conclude that that's a, um, a national security threat. I don't even know what the standards that one would use in making that kind of assessment. Do you? It's a great example of just yet another way that Trump was testing the system in ways that you and I could have sat here and never could have come up with. Can you investigate whether the president is compromised by our chief foreign adversary? It's just such an incredible question. And I think that, you know, smart legal minds would say that you probably can't do it because if you believe in a robust executive, the president sets the priorities and he's the one he could say, well, I don't think that Russia is a problem. So I'm in charge of the executive branch. Don't investigate my ties to Russia. And there's another question, which is, is it is it a good thing to have the FBI rummaging around and the president's decades long ties to this adversary? And um, that was the surprising thing about the Senate intelligence report that came out a couple of weeks ago is that they're throwing out there these allegations about, you know, Trump may have spent time with Miss Moscow. Yeah, I, I got to say, I was surprised by that. I, I mean, was surprised like, they put all that stuff in there. Um, this is a bipartisan committee run by yeah. run, run by Republicans that is like, oh, hey, um, we don't think the Russians necessarily have anything compromising on the president, but here's some stuff that may be. Um, and here's some really embarrassing stuff about Donald Trump, about strip clubs. About, oh, we don't know if it happened or not, but here yeah. it is. And the, 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 the thing about the Trump era is, is that our attention spans in the cycles are so slow that uh, so are so short that we just kind of moved on from it. But like imagine like a Senate, the Senate Intelligence Committee is probably the most respected body on the Hill that has looked at these things. And they're just taking these allegations and saying, eh, we don't know if they're true or not, but here's some yeah. really embarrassing stuff about Donald Trump. Maybe, maybe, maybe they could compromise him with it. Maybe not. I don't know. You figure it out next. Yeah, I know. I, I had the same uh, reaction to it. Well, listen, there's uh, so much uh, fascinating stuff in the book. We could go on for another couple hours on it. The other alternative for people is to go out and buy Donald Trump versus the United States. I want to say, uh, Michael, you made a reference before to uh, the cheap seats. We were actually supposed to go to a Nats game last year sitting in the cheap seats. We never made it presumably because you were working on the book. I don't think we're going to get to do it this year. So I was going to suggest I will send a uh, a cardboard photo of myself to Nats <laughs> Stadium. You do the same and we will uh, take in the Nats game that way. No, I mean, I just, um, you know, uh, we've had a chance to go to a couple of games together and um, you're, um, you're the kind of reporter, you know, reporters like myself, we stand on your shoulders um, and sort of trying to follow in your wake of... Uh, you know, what you've done in your career. So, um, you know, you're, you're an example of something we all strive to be. So, well, you, you've, you've already, you've already achieved it. Anyway, uh, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Good luck with the book and we'll uh, be checking in again. Thanks for having me.